Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today, I have Jackson Pios on the podcast. Jackson has his PhD. He is a researcher in our field, and he is a trainer and a coach, um, and he is very passionate about anime. We actually brought up Dragon Ball Z at least once on the podcast. Uh, Jackson is an advocate of science-based methods, but it's also nice because he's not just a researcher. He is a practitioner. He not only coaches people, but you can tell he actually lives the lifestyle, and he really does practice what he preaches. Today, you're going to get a ton of applicable information all about refeeds and diet breaks. That is what he has done a lot of his own research in, as well as really researching and studying over all the other literature in the field about diet breaks. Um, I think you're going to learn a lot about them that you haven't learned on this podcast yet, some uh, disappointing facts about diet breaks that are coming out in the research, um, and some positive benefits that are going to help you diet longer, smarter, safer, and probably get a better result in the end. Um, really, really excited about this one. This one was a fun conversation for me. Uh, he had a great time too, and you can tell that it was just a really in-depth conversation on one single topic for like an hour. So I think you guys are going to get a ton of information about this, which is something that I've talked about so many times in the past. So I'm glad to bring an actual researcher on the topic into the podcast to really share his thoughts with me and have a coaching discussion. You can check out Jackson at Jackson Pios on Instagram or check out his YouTube. Same thing, Jackson Pios. Please do me a favor. If you like this episode, tag us both on Instagram, shoot a screenshot of the episode, post on your story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom and tag Jackson at Jackson Pios. Both will be in the show notes of this podcast. And without any further ado, let's get into the diet break research with Jackson Pios. All right. So today we got Jackson Pios, and uh, I'm excited for this, man. Uh, I've, I've especially recently been diving into more and more of your content. Um, and it's funny because one of the things that caught my eye at first was actually like a Dragon Ball Z thing on Instagram. Uh, I was a huge Dragon Ball Z fan growing up. So <laughs> I was like, who is this guy? And I started digging through. And then um, I saw, I think it was, maybe it was Revive Stronger. Um, have you been on that podcast? Yeah, well? yeah, Steve's podcast, yep. Yeah, so I heard that, um, and then, like I said before, the Ultimate Base uh, Conference as well, Ultimate Evidence-Based Conference. So you've been on a lot of stuff, man. You've been popping up more and more and more in my feed, so I really like what you're doing, and I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. I'm happy to, happy to chat. Um, so f- first and foremost, uh, give the listeners an idea of, I mean, essentially, like, wh- who, who is Jackson? Like, how did you get to where you are? Like, why did you dive into this, and what do you actually do today? Yeah, so basically, as a, as a child, I was just uh, – a sport head and a a massive athlete at heart Um, and I competed in sports uh, my whole life um, going up to to semi-professional in Australian rules football um, and a state roller and um, competing pretty high level in athletics um, during school time. Um, as school was sort of coming to a close, um, my, my passion for, for sport was as high as it ever could be Um, and I just found myself naturally starting to ask questions about how I could sort of improve 
performance in this or get a bit stronger in that. And, and basically that sort of was a very uh, basic uh, self-directed introduction into the evidence-based method essentially, um, which is trying to sort of peruse the material that's out there, um, interpret it, make sense of it, and then try and uh, apply it to your own training with the, uh, and nutrition with the hope of sort of maximizing the, the potential benefits and response that you can get. So when I finished up school, <clears throat> Uh, I was already, I was just out of pure interest and, and enjoyment. I was already sort of going through some basic uh, research studies and things like that, purely just to, to enhance my own performance. Um, and then I got into an undergraduate degree uh, at the University of Western Australia. I double majored in sports science and exercise and health. Um, I did quite well with that um, and offered a position to complete an honours degree, which is sort of like an introduction into uh, research. And um, that was in yeah, exercise physiology. And that was, um, I ran a couple of studies focusing on um, blood flow restriction training and, and things like that and the mechanisms underlying the muscle growth with those. Uh, and during that sort of mid-year, um, when I was doing some sort of advanced exercise physiology sort of lectures and, and, and teachings and sort of starting to really dig into like the biochemistry and things like that, I found myself uh, I found my passion for the nutrition side uh, or the, the, um, the nutrition niche of sports science sort of just kept growing and growing. And, and I found myself sort of constantly um, just gravitating towards nutrition all the time. And I, I worked quite quickly, uh, worked out quite quickly that when you're uh, looking at sports athletes, particularly elite athletes, um, their training is all pretty good, really. Like it doesn't vary too much. They're all training like pretty high damn volume. Um, they're all pushing themselves at pretty high um, relative intensities. Um, but where there can be substantial gains made is with the nutrition side of things. And, and uh, I'm not sure, I assume that there would be similar parallels where you, you're based, but in Australia, even our elite athletes, um, they, they would have no comprehending of the macronutrient breakdown of the, the meals they're eating that it's and and a lot of their nutrition education is based on what they see on television or what they hear on the news or what their buddy told him that that he should eat so um what i found was that because when when with working with sports athletes and competitive athletes which i wanted to do i found that that it sort of um even the most perfect optimal training periodized program that you can set for an athlete, um, you might have to get them run at like four or five months if they're already at the elite level to notice some actual like improvements. And even then, um, because everyone's already training so damn hard anyway, it's still quite difficult to sort of bridge a gap between your athlete and the competition. Uh, but with nutrition, because there was, uh, I found that, um, a lot of the, the sports athletes had a long way to go in terms of optimization of that side of things. All, all it really took was for me to give a few simple tweaks here and there and you get immediate response. And, and all of a sudden these athletes are like, holy crap, I feel the best um, I, I ever have before. I, I just finished off the back of a uh, prep with um, an Olympic boxer for, for the qualifications for the, the Tokyo Olympics. And um, we sort of teed up uh, about, 12 weeks before the qualifiers and th this is a girl who's one of the, the best boxers in Australia um, and she, she they don't get one-on-one -on -one nutrition advice and, and she wasn't sure what she'd be doing with diet and she was often having to rely on sauna to make weight and things like that and, and then she came to me and um, 
we're able to get her on weight without having to use any dehydration strategies and just uh, some gradual sort of calorie restriction and, and a few little hunger management techniques. And then we had the, her on weight a couple of days before the fight. She could rest, eat up, um, no sort of like, because with the amateurs, you're sort of it, you're making what you're saunering in the morning and then you're sort of trying to chuck in a bunch of water fluids and, and, and um, food in like the couple of hours before you go out and fight. And it's just far from ideal. Um, and this was one of her best um, sort of appearances, competitive appearance so far. So, uh, and that just sort of really um, resonates with me because, or, and, and just confirms my, um, my speculation that, that even elite athletes were that we might assume from the outset that they're doing their nutrition on point and quite diligently and, and ever in an evidence-based fashion, but often they're not. Um, they're just training really damn hard and they're just trying to eat what they think they should eat or what their body buddy told them to eat. Um, so yeah, my, 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 my real, I really started sinking my teeth into nutrition because I was like, Holy crap, I can, I can make a big difference here and I make, I can make a fast difference. Um, so Fast track that was to the end of my honours degree. <clears throat> um, I did well in my honours study, so I was offered a PhD scholarship. And that's when I decided I was going to go head on focusing um, on nutrition strategies and nutrition research. Um, and uh, specifically, how could we get athletes in the best body composition possible by dietary means while minimizing the harms um, to, to performance and, and things like that. What, what are the sort of most optimal and novel dietary strategies that we can use to have um, our athletes basically on point. So that, that's where I am at the moment. Um, I've got a couple of studies um, just completed that are in manuscript preparation, which have looked at uh, the implementation of diet breaks. So higher feeding periods sort of sprinkled within um, throughout a weight loss phase um, with the, uh, the hypothesis that they may, that these higher feeding periods or the diet breaks might minimize some of the negative adaptations that often accompany weight loss or dieting. Um, I'm also looking at um, a couple of satiety management uh, research studies, basically the effects of um, different macronutrient breakdowns and energy densities um, consumed at breakfast and what sort of um, influence that has on ad libitum food consumption at sort of three hours later at, at around lunchtime. Um, so yeah, I've got plenty to do, but, but that's probably a, a quick rundown of, of where I got to um, here today. Before I dive into any questions on, on any of that or, or the ones I have lined up, are you allowed to share any of what those research studies are showing that are currently under, under uh, review? I, I, can, I can talk about some of the preliminary findings, yeah. Okay, cool. So, um, and I think even with the, the fact that you're in the midst of a diet break study is perfect because that's the main topic for today. Um, mm -hmm. So you obviously have a really fresh opinion on it. Um, so my main first question is kind of like, throw it to you and let you run with it is, is I mean, after reviewing other people's research, um, we know a few that have come out and considering other intermittent restriction over the years that has come out. Um, and then what you're doing right now, I mean, what's your conclusion? Like, what, what do you feel like you've learned about them? I know originally, and this is a while back when they first started popularizing, it was almost like too good to be true. And we thought like it would just reverse all these processes and these adaptations that are happening. Maybe these physiological benefits aren't completely true. Um, but I still believe you, as a practitioner, 
I used eye breaks all the time. So I had somebody ask me like, Hey, Brandon said he didn't really agree with some of the research. And I was like, I, I see the points, but it works in experience. So I still feel value inside of using diet breaks across the board, regardless of what a study says. Um, just for, for your context of where, where I stand, but I would love for you to kind of rip that apart and, and go in depth with what you see. Mm. So my stance has definitely changed over the last probably 18 months. So in 2019, I published a review paper with Eric Helms, Lane Norton, um, Dr. Andy Galpin and co., um, and basically we reviewed all the intermittent dieting research that was out there and intermittent dieting, including things like refeeds and diet breaks. And at that time we didn't have any studies completed in an athlete population. We were just focusing on the refeed diet break studies that were mostly in overweight human models or, or overweight animal models. Um, and from the literature that we had at that point, it seemed to me like any protocol that was using moderate intermittent energy restriction so not like smashing people with really severe deficits during the dieting periods and then having like a moderate sort of refeeding on diet break somewhere around maintenance it looked like those protocols almost always yielded some benefits over continuous dieting throughout the whole time even moderate continuous dieting through the through, for the duration of the weight loss phase uh, so I was quite confident at that point that, hang on, yeah, okay, these refeeds and diet breaks, I've got something. And, and I've, if you go back and read the paper, I talked about um, the, the evidence that shows that, that these higher feeding periods might sort of offset some of the downgrades in resting metabolic rate, um, potentially sustain a, a more ideal hormonal, hormonal profile, um, potentially enhance um, performance and even lean mass retention over the course of the weight loss phase like these were a lot of the the benefits that i was speculating since i published that paper uh, my stance has sort of done a little bit of a flip and uh i do think it's, it could be a bit of a case of with uh, it, it it is too good to be true um in a sense that's not to say i don't think they have any benefits um, i just think the benefits that are often parroted around in this little fitness community are, are heavily overblown um, and, and that's on the basis of not only my studies with the refeeds, um, sorry, the diet break studies that I've completed over the last 12 months, uh, but even the Campbell paper, uh, with the double day refeed study, um, I'm just not convinced that, um, well, firstly for, for my diet break study, <clears throat> uh, the general trends are not showing superior fat loss, resting metabolic rate retention, um, hormonal restoration we're not even seeing like notable increases in in leptin during the diet break which is what everyone's been sort of throwing around the trap for, for years and years and years um and i think that's a case because when we were sort of thinking this leptin was this sort of golden ticket um it was often based on a lot of overfeeding studies um where they're not they're not consuming energy balance they're consuming really large surpluses to cause these increases in in leptin which are also causing um, increases in adipose and adipose contains it secretes the leptin so um, but with refeeds and diet breaks if we're adding adipose uh, it probably doesn't even really matter that we're adding that we're releasing more leptin because we're just adding more fat that we need to get off later on um, and i uh, haven't seen better uh, just from the general trend so far not seeing better um, lean mass retention uh, in the group with the diet breaks either so um, physiologically I don't think that seven day diet breaks every three weeks of dieting are going to 
um, enhance the bottom line if we're just from a purely physiological perspective. But I think what they can do is help indirectly because I've some of the other trends are showing that those in the diet break group, um, they're having reduced hunger levels. Um, their, their hunger just seems to be a lot, lot more consistent and lower and closer to the baseline values. Whereas the continuous dieting group over their 12 weeks of dieting, it just seems to go bang, like straight up. Um, and hunger is really getting out of control by the end. Um, and we're also seeing that the guys in the diet break group, they had lowered irritability and higher alertness. And I think that's probably a follow on effect from sort of having lower food focus, lower hunger, that they feel less shitty, um, maybe a little bit more sort of focused on, on their day-to-day activities as opposed to the continuous dieting group who's perhaps just thinking about clock watching to when the next meal is um, or whatnot. So um, from an adherence perspective, this is still important because obviously if we, if we can design a dietary protocol that has lower hunger over the course of the weight loss phase, that is surely going to um, lead to better results. With really elite athletes, it probably doesn't matter too much because they just stick to the plan regardless. You tell them to eat dirt, they, they eat it. But with, for more of the, the less advanced, less elite athletes, or even just the gen poppers trying to look a bit better naked, um, diet breaks could be quite valuable for them um, because it just allows their hunger to stay a little bit more under control and potentially sort of reduce binge eating episodes and overeating on the plan. And, and that might cause sort of better fat loss and better results, but, but mainly from an indirect perspective, as opposed to these diet breaks, having these direct physiological advantages, advantages which are in, initially uh, proposed. Now, um, the same can be said for the people might be a little bit confused, but the same can be said for the, the refeed study by Campbell. Um, now when this paper got published, everyone was sort of saying, Oh, see, we, we knew that refeeds, um, enhanced metabolic rate. And we, we knew that it maintained, um, fat free mass. But when you actually look at the data, um, there are no between group differences, uh, for, uh, the change in resting metabolic rate or the change in fat-free mass alone between the groups. Um, the only difference that, are, that stands is, is this dry fat-free mass, which is um, basically just, they've, um, they've just taken fat-free mass and then they've subtracted body water using ultrasound, which is, has its own flaws in itself. Um, and it's not, it's, as far as I know, it's not a, like this dry fat-free mass method they use. It's not validated in the research. So I think they created it. Um, and yeah, what I'm, but that unfortunately wasn't the conclusions that the authors made. The authors said that yes, using double day refeeds will retain more resting metabolic rate, fat free mass, and dry fat free mass. Where in, in reality, I think the conclusion should be refeeds won't retain more fat free mass or resting energy expenditure compared to continuous energy restriction, but they will retain a little bit more dry fat free mass. But I even have some question marks over the legitimacy of the dry fat free mass um, greater retention because uh, their final testing session happened only two days post the final refeed. Now, this dry fat free mass that they're seeing, um, like the, the other group, they're, they're, they're being weighed, um, they're having their measurements two days after their seven weeks of straight dieting. How low is their glycogen level is going to be? which is which is a component of dry fat free mass it doesn't matter if you count the water the the, glyco the glycogen is still there now we've got we've got this group who's just done a two-day refeed and they're, and they're being measured 48 hours later 
what is the potential for there being some residual glycogen left over? I'd say that this is pretty high. Um, and I'd say that potentially this difference or this better retention in dry fat free mass that was reported is just a result of this acute sort of storage of glycogen that hasn't sort of fully dissipated um, just yet. Now, um, a lot of people seem to think or have this misconception that by accounting for water that they're accounting for glycogen, but that's just not the case. We have dry glycogen and, and that still contains mass um, and that it's going to be 25% of, of the weight of the glycogen and, and the fluid combined. So um, yeah, I, I, I would have liked to see them have their final testing instead of two days post refeed, have it five days post refeed, like because they did five days of consecutive dieting measure them just before their next refeed. So you've actually probably accounted for those short-term glycogen um, storage effects. So yeah, I have a few question marks about that study. I think uh, in some circles and, and among people who don't have uh, scientific expertise, it's probably gone a shot over their head a little bit. And if they're only reading the conclusions, they're, they're probably going to go tell their buddies that, yep, okay, we can have refeeds because we're going to maintain more resting metabolic rate and more muscle during our dieting. But uh, those conclusions just ain't supported by the data, in my opinion. It's uh, really, really similar to the kind of argument or the stance Brandon had when he came on mm -hmm. and we did kind of a research review. Um, and, and it's funny because like the thing I asked him was, do you think there's any indirect benefits of it? And that's basically what you said as well. And I think that um, for me as a, as a coach, uh, it's, it's more about, is this going to help this person follow the diet for a longer period of time without mm. falling off track? And like, that's I all. think without a doubt for, for, for most people, without a doubt, the psychological advantages are going to be very prominent and it doesn't need to just be from the, the benefits that I talked about not, that I've noticed in the diet break study of sort of reduced hunger, reduced irritability, higher alertness. You got to also factor in things like, um, the the opportunity to now have social meals with friends and family or on a saturday or a sunday when your diet break or your refeed is scheduled um, just simple things like that uh, can increase the overall enjoyment of the protocol itself um, make it feel a little bit less restrictive uh, and less sort of disastrous and and that in itself can be an indirect adherence measure do you think, um, I, I have a couple questions following up with it. One is just how long this research studies that you're doing are. And then the second would be, do you like, I mean, because the muscle is, there's a lot of muscle glycogen and, and fluid stored in the muscle cell. Do you think that there's any benefit to these from a muscle maintenance or performance maintenance standpoint, just simply because you're consistently replenishing every so often versus if you did a 16 week diet without any refeeds, even if it is just muscle glycogen, if you feel better in the gym, like, 16, 20, 24 weeks, is that going to end up paying off? I know it's hard to do that long of a study, um, but do you think there's any benefit from that point? It's funny you say that. It's actually, I've actually got dug into this exact question in one of my other studies, which okay. is going to be published quite soon. So uh, what we did was, um, so my original diet break study went for basically 15 weeks. So we had one group with the diet breaks who dieted three weeks straight and had one week diet breaks and just cycled that over until 15 weeks were done. And then we had the, um, the continuous group who did 12 weeks dieting straight. We retested them and then we, did, well, then we gave them their three-week diet break. But at the end, so it took them to 15 weeks so we could measure after equal dieting weeks versus also after equal absolute time to see if there are any differences. It just makes it a, a better controlled study. Um, now, what, we, what I ended up deciding to do was sort of add on a second study where um, we took the diet break group, 
who had just done their 15 weeks. And we said, can you come back to the lab or can you do another diet break, uh, sort of a week 16 test um, protocol, if you would. So they were just on the back of three weeks of deficit straight. And then we said, okay, we're gonna, we want you to come back to the lab um, on day one of the diet break, give you a new diet break for seven days and then come back on day seven again. And we looked at things like appetite, um, fat-free mass, resting metabolic rate, um, uh, and performance. performance. Um, now, what we saw was if we, if we compare the changes in performance over the complete weight loss phase over the 15 weeks, it doesn't look like there's, there's that much difference if we map it over a full weight loss phase. But when we compare performance immediately pre, so day one of the diet break versus immediately post, so day eight of the diet break after seven days in energy balance, we see significant improvements in muscle endurance, um, most notably in the legs. Now, what that tells me is, is like you said, it's probably a, a short-term or acute increase in muscle glycogen that's allowing sort of the muscle to train a little bit harder for longer before fatiguing. Um, now, um, this is quite short-term. So I think it's, that benefit's only going to last for as long as like the extra glycogen's hanging around. And that's probably why we didn't see it a better maintenance of performance over the course of a 15-week intervention because um, each post-diet break, they're probably elevated muscle glycogen for like maybe just as long as the time that they're in energy balance. Maybe once, as soon as they go back to the deficit, sort of those performances go down as the glycogen gets flushed out. But that still has merit because that could say, well, okay, when you're having your diet breaks, we know that you're going to have, at least during the diet break, you're going to have enhanced endurance capacity. So would that then make sense for us to have our, well, that would provide athletes with an opportune time for really intense high volume training, perhaps sort of their highest volume week or highest intensity week pre deload or something like that, because it's just going to mean that their performance is going to be optimized and they're going to temporarily negate some of the performance impairments as a result from dieting only for seven days, but that will still allow them to have a really, really productive week of training with really high output volume intensity that they probably otherwise wouldn't have been able to have if they did that week on like on like a deficit week so i think there's definitely something to be said for synchronizing these periods of energy balance with either like an outcome focused training week where you might be doing testing in the gym or something like that or at least like a really high volume or high intensity um, week where uh, that extra calories is probably going to um, improve your 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 ability to train harder for longer. Um, and that could provide an indirect sort of um, competitive edge in the long run on, on competition day or show day. I love that. That's a perfect answer to, to kind of where my mind was going. Um, now that like we've kind of gone through all these scenarios and these different studies, I'm, I'm curious if you're um, one of the, it probably wasn't the first, so you can correct me if I'm wrong there, but um, one of the like more prominent ones that first came out on this idea was the Matador study. And like, everybody was raving about it. it was like i just remember reading tons of different reviews and people talking about it and i even remember a lot of coaches immediately jumping and thinking like that's what they had to do um so i'm really just curious of of your thoughts i've never i shouldn't say i've never i typically don't follow a structure like that with any clients um i just took some pieces out of the study that i thought were valuable for my coaching experience but what are, what are your opinions with that did you find any flaws with the matador study and how they approached it because they had from the sounds of it, some pretty favorable results at the end of it, according to their, their authors. So um, 
the, one of the authors of the Matador is actually part of my research group. So we've spoken um, in depth about that study and, and sort of once my findings started coming to light, um, how would they factor into to what the Matador showed? Um, now, some of the takeaways that I've had after those discussions is that, um, so the, the group using the two-week diet breaks after every two weeks of dieting in the Matador, they maintained a high resting metabolic rate and they lost more fat over the course of the intervention compared to the continuous dieting group. Now, on face value, you would say, okay, the diet breaks are causing a physiological advantage here that, that are sort of probably allowing us to maintain a higher metabolic rate and we're burning more calories throughout the day and that's sort of having a downstream effect on burning more fat across the intervention. That's one simple way to look at it. But after looking at the data, the better retention of resting metabolic rate, even though it was significant, excuse me, doesn't seem to be large enough to explain the size of the fat loss benefits that were, that were seen um, with the diet break group. Uh, that from memory, they, they retained around 150 calories per day more than, um, than the continuous dieting group, which is not enough to explain the kilos more fat loss that, that, that they achieved. But once I've factored into the preliminary, preliminary findings of, of my diet break study, which is called the ice cap study, um, with considering that the diet break group is showing notably lower hunger levels, what I think is that the group who were using the two-week diet breaks after every two weeks of dieting, I think they had lower hunger and more managed hunger and this led to them sticking to the plan a little bit better. And that's what caused the greater amount of fat loss. And when we factor that in, perhaps that's why um, the, there was so the, the notable increase in fat loss that happened over the 15 weeks. Whereas I think in the continuous dieting group, I think their hunger might've just sort of got out of control at times. Uh, and that's what caused them to sort of slip off the plan and, and eat off and potentially slow some of that fat loss. Now we need to remember that this is in a, in a, a population of overweight men. Now, um, the assumption is that they have some difficulties with energy restraint or, or calorie rest caloric restraint. So, um, in, in populations like that, we we just can't expect for them to have precise sort of followed dietary protocols precisely. And and, and for for those sort of people who are just volunteering in studies. When the hunger gets high enough, they, they often don't have enough driver to say, okay, not nah, I'm going to override these hunger cues and I'm just going to dig in regardless. A lot, of, a lot of the times when the hunger kicks in, they're like, oh, don't like that. I'm going to have a Mars bar sort of thing. Um, and that's essentially why they remain in, in the body composition state that they do. Whereas I don't think we saw the same fat loss benefits in the ice cap study with athletes, because I think athletes just have experience and they're, they're a little bit wired differently where, where things get a little bit tough and they sort of go, Oh yeah, well I knew this was coming and it's like, it's part of the process and now we get on with it. Um, so I think even though the continuous diet group might've had more hunger uh, that weren't having the diet breaks, I think they sort of just said, Oh, well we know dieting sucks anyway, uh, but that's how you get the results. So they just pushed on and, and perhaps, had the, the, there were less threats to, to their adherence, even though uh, their hunger um, was higher. Yeah. And I think that goes back to like it being too good to be true. Like you said at the beginning, like seeing the results and people jumping to conclusions of it being 
some kind of hormonal or metabolic thing might not be the case, but if it indirectly helps adherence, that can be a win. Um, but I would agree with like, if we're talking about physique athletes or even just sport athletes, like usually a little bit of restriction sometimes even motivates them more because they like the grind, you know? And I think yeah. that's, that's, yeah. that's just part of it. Athletes are weird, man. Yeah. <laughs> so it's different. Um, with these studies in, uh, the ones you did, or um, I believe Bill Campbell's did, according to the, what they came up with. But at the end of the study, at the same weeks, was the same. Have you have you seen that even with diet breaks, uh, for the most part, you're going to see the same amount of fat loss if you take the diet breaks versus without? Um, and in that case, like, why not have some high calorie days? Yeah. So. In, in simple answer, no, I haven't seen better fat loss with the diet breaks. So yes, from one perspective, we say, hey, like, why not um, put in some diet breaks every three weeks then? Because it's not going to hurt our fat loss. But that doesn't mean there's no downsides. Because after all, we, we've got to remember that, let's say a continuous dieting group, lost, lost, they lost the fat in 12 weeks because they just did 12 weeks of straight dieting. Now, the intermittent diet break group, they lost the same amount of weight, the same amount of fat but it took them 15 weeks mm. when you account for the three weeks of diet break. So that might not, that might be a worthy trade-off for a, a bodybuilding competitor who's got 30 weeks before their show. Um, but for some athletes, like it, you, you might have a, a, a MMA fighter who comes to you 10 weeks out. Um, you might not have the luxury to sprinkle in these diet breaks. So you just got to sort of um, just got to push them continuously. So I think that the only downside is the greater time commitment that, that's going to be coming with um, using diet breaks uh, because uh, basically it's, it's diet breaks is where you just basically chuck the car in neutral. You sort of, um, you're not make really progressing too far. You sort of just coast for a little bit like fat loss isn't really occurring during those periods. You sort of just put things on, on pause. Uh, so it's actually, it's, it's time spent when you're not, per se, getting closer to your goal. So if you are really time restricted, perhaps a, a continuous approach would be a better option because you can just get in, get out, get it done, um, and then back to sort of performing optimally. But for, for a lot of other competitors who perhaps they're really struggling with hunger and perhaps they don't have really hard time frames, and, and um, perhaps they would prefer to have a little bit sort of um, less stress on the, the psycholo psychology in that case, maybe some of these diet breaks and refeeds would be pretty smart moves. Um, I'd love to hear your application of it. Like knowing all of this and, and knowing exactly, um, I mean, even like what has changed, because I'm sure once upon a time, you probably jumped all over them, used them more than you do now maybe. Um, but are you still using diet breaks? And, and if you are, how are you structuring these? Yeah, so I still am using them. Um, probably less often it, that was sort of part and parcel of anyone in the fat loss stage at, at one point in time um, when I was sort of designing up my uh, review paper, but now it's sort of uh, basically have a checklist. If um, we have plenty of time, the client has plenty of time uh, to reach their goal uh, and not a whole lot of fat to lose, um, then I will implement diet breaks most likely um, just because I think the benefits of lower hunger, uh, less irritability, higher alertness, uh, they're all quite notable and they can have indirect um, sort of adherence advantages um, and even indirect competitive advantages. Because like if you're always so food focused, how are you going to be focusing on your competitive goal and your training sessions and things like that? I'd rather save that sort of mental capacity and, and uh, mental resources, which are 
by night to be focused towards um, what's important, not sort of always thinking about what when your next meal is. So I will use them um, often every one a week long diet break every four to six weeks is usually what I'll go with. Sometimes three to six weeks, um, and it will be basically scaled with how much time we've got before the, the, the competition. If they, they come to me 30 weeks out, then I'm usually quite comfortable to do a diet break every three weeks. If they come to me 15 weeks out, they might only get one or two diet breaks during that whole um, weight loss intervention. Um, so it's basically scaled with how much time they've got before target and, and how much fat they've got to lose. Um, if I've, I've worked with combat fighters in the past, and uh, often they might just find out that they've got to fight in a couple of months, um, and then you sort of straight into weight cut and camp, bang on. Um, and in some of those cases, you just don't have the time luxury to be able to implement um, uh, diet breaks because if you're spending sort of a, a week at maintenance where you're not actually getting closer to your your weight calorie, sort of that that can mean that the the deficit weeks following need to be too aggressive and, and too severe, and it's just not worthwhile. Ever since all this research came out, it kind of seemed like originally it was like a cheat meal and then a cheat day and then a refeed day and then two day refeed and then it was three day diet break. And now it's like week, you know, um, and now a lot of people are like, eh, it's no point, like just take maintenance phases and like lean gaining phases and then do a cut. Um, yeah. Do you think that there's no point in refeeds now either? Or do you still tend to use those ever? No, I, I still, I still do refeeds. Um, <laughs> it's so funny how sometimes we start so simply and then we get more and more advanced and technical. And then as more research comes out, we always just end up going back to the simple <laughs> yeah. stuff over again. It's, it's so funny. It, it doesn't, it's not even just in nutrition only. It happens in training all the time. We get these yeah. really, really complex like frequencies and periodization programs. And then we end up back where we started. Um, so I will use refeeds is a good one if they don't have the time luxury to have week long diet breaks, uh, but you still want to provide the athlete or the client with a little bit of um, psychological refreshment. And, and often I just try to pitch it as like a, instead of like a, a refeed meal per se, I'll call it like a reward meal or a reward day. Usually it's a reward meal um, because I find that if, if you're at, if you're going from deficit to maintenance for one day or two days and you spread that over five meals, the meals are relatively the same and it doesn't seem to have that psychological like refreshment effect. But if you have your sort of four meals that you normally do, and then that fifth meal of the day is quite larger and it's a lot different, more satiating, um, that tends to sort of really like rejuvenate the client a little bit more than sort of adding 50 grams of rice to your other four meals or, or something like that. Um, so I do use them not to increase metabolic rate or to um, increase uh, lean mass retention or, or anything like that. It's, it's purely just to increase the overall enjoyment of the protocol and potentially facilitate the adherence during the deficit days. Because often if they're sort of day four and struggling during the week, they sort they can sometimes knowing that they've only got to go two more days before a refeed meal is coming and they can go out with their family and get some Nando's or get some sushi or somewhere like that, that can just be a massive adherence facilitator in itself. Yeah. So yeah, I, I do still use them, but not for the physiological benefits that some might think I do. Yeah. I, I, I really like what you said about, um, just the trends of where things go and then come back to is so funny. Cause I can think of, things that I studied in training years ago when I first started uh, interning as a strength coach in just like the simplest programs and things got so complex over time. And now I'm mm -hmm. right back to the basics of like, yeah. 
just hit my volume and progress it, you know, and it's, it's yeah. pretty basic and, and I'm getting better yeah. gains than ever. Um, cool. The, the last thing I wanted to kind of bring up and get your opinion on is just, um, I don't know if ultra high carb is the right word, but it, it's become a little bit more popular to have a pretty high carb and low fat diet. Um, I've seen pretty good experience with uh, people just maintaining muscle and performance and, and getting through a diet just as good um unless it's just hard to adhere because obviously if you lower fat if you if you don't eat like the typical bro that can be kind of hard right but for some people it's it's not an issue at all um do you ever use those high carb lower fat approaches um especially i would say even like more advantageous in like a lean gaining phase where you can just keep cranking carbs up and keep fats kind of managed do you find any value in that i know there's not a ton of research on it but um just from practical experience yeah so unless they're really, really against carbs or like just taking fats out of their diet is going to wreak havoc on their psychology, then I will try to push them with a low fat, high carb approach. Now we don't have really well controlled studies on athletes comparing like a high carb, low fat versus higher fat and low carb, but we do have a reasonable theoretical rationale if we sort of pick apart single studies from here and there so let's just say we're comparing like carbs and fats um calorie for, for calorie for calorie now carbohydrates they replenish glycogen fats don't uh, when we have high glycogen stores performance both strength and endurance performance is enhanced whereas fats don't achieve that either uh, we also know that in the context of a dieting phase when muscle glycogen is really low for for extended periods of time there seems to be a suppression in muscle protein synthesis so it makes sense in my mind that if we can sort of have a carb a higher carbohydrate intake to potentially uh, keep a higher glycogen content um, or at least temporarily every now and again offset uh, those like low glycogen levels to to suppress this catabolic signal that's happening that that could be advantageous as well now um carbs are anabolic from the from the uh, perspective of the insulin mediated anabolic pathways and the way they activate those um, cellular mechanisms whereas fats don't have that anabolic potential either now um if we're in the in just speaking in a fat loss um context carbohydrates most carbohydrate sources unless you're eating honey um there are there they're a lot more voluminous and, and less energy dense than fats are. Now, if you have too many high fats, your, your overall food volume and the, the energy the, the overall food volume is going to be lower than your energy density is going to be really higher. So basically what that means is you're consuming the same amount of calories, but with far less food going through the system. And that can have sort of nasty consequences on your satiety and your ability to manage hunger. Whereas if you're consuming low fats, so the, so the, limiting those dense food sources and, and sort of substituting them with higher volume, higher fiber, which and with fiber having its own hunger suppressing effects. Um, and then you factor in sort of the whole grains and your ability to consume a higher volume of low energy, energy dense foods like whole grains, fruits, vegetables. Um, it's just extremely um, benefit. Uh, it's extremely more optimal to, for suppressing, suppressing appetite, um, managing hunger when calories are quite restricted. And I, and I just find, unless you're on keto, when you've got the ketones going through, which have the appetite suppressing effect, if you're just going like moderate high carb and, and sort of moderate, um, moderate fat, it, it's, you're just a, a whole lot more hungrier because you're, the food volume that's going through is less. Um, the energy density is much higher and the fiber going through um, is far less as well. So 
I just think that when we're weighing up carbs and fats, there's a lot more ticks on the carbohydrate side of the spectrum and, and just not many on the fats. If we weigh them up, the only real benefits that I can see of fats is that they, they can make your food uh, taste a little bit nicer. That's the only real advantage. Um, now, uh, how low is too low? We don't want to go sort of below our, our essential fatty acid needs because we know that we need them for signaling chemical mess messengers and hormonal production and things like that. Um, but the requirements to achieve that intake are just not very high. Somewhere around half a gram per kilo of body weight it, it will, will suffice or 20% or of your calories. So um, it just seems to me like um, if you've got a client, unless they're just like, I need my peanut butter and my guacamole, um, it just seems like if you can keep that fat on the lower end, um, then you're going to obtain all those, those benefits from carbohydrates that just can't be matched by, by more fat intake. I think that's a perfect answer, dude. I, I agree hundred percent. That's kind of how I look at it. And I think that, um, I think a lot of people forget too, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. When you're dieting, a lot of those hormonal issues are not necessarily because your fat's low, it's because your calories are really low and you're in a mm -hmm. diet. Hundred percent. It's going to happen no matter what, even if you are on a, a high fat diet, if you're on keto and you're barely eating anything, probably not going to be a good keto diet and you're probably <laughs> going to have that um, issue regardless. So um, man, you, you crushed this podcast. There was a ton of really applicable information that you gave. So I appreciate you coming on. I think the audience is going to get a lot out of this. Um, so dude, thank you for your time. And then, and last but not least, like let us know where people can find you so we can list them on the show notes and, and let people uh, learn from you more. Awesome, man. I, I really enjoyed that chat. I think we went deep and hard, which was very cool. Um, so best place to get me is on Instagram. Everything that, um, that I'm doing goes through there. That's just at Jackson Pios. Um, and I've recently started my YouTube channel, um, mostly focused on educational con content and a little bit of, of lifestyle, lifestyle content. So if you could drop me a, a subscribe on my YouTube, um, that would be hugely appreciated. Perfect, dude. I'll link both those in the show notes. And once again, dude, thank you. Thank you, man. It was a great chat. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at cody at boomboomperformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.